All right, it's good to see you guys this morning. Um, I love getting to just like sing those truths that we just sang. I love getting to worship with you guys. Um, if you've been with us this summer, you know we've been having a lot of different people preach. We've been to hear from a lot of different people, which has been great and fun. Uh, but also, I've been excited to, to get back in a spot where I'm getting to, to preach to you guys, because I love um, just being able to bring the word. So I have the privilege of being able to do that this morning. Um, how many of you guys are interested? Or how many are you excited for Fourth of July coming up? Maybe? Yeah, man, not not that. Maybe like half of you care about Fourth of July. Okay, for me, like Fourth of July growing up was probably the biggest holiday in our family outside of Christmas. You know, because obviously Christmas has all the other things going on. But Fourth of July, like we took it seriously. We had a massive party, and uh, we still do it every year. You know, we we get all the guns out, we shoot lots of guns, we we blow stuff up. You know, we eat lots of food. And, and, and why not, right? Just, we do it because we can, because it's America. Um, and, and, yeah, you like my picture. You can't see it that well. That guy, that's a stereotype of an American. Um, but, no, I, I mean, we, we love doing those things just because Fourth of July, in, in many ways, it almost seems like it's uh, this over-the-top celebration of just what our culture is and what we're allowed to do. And I think uh, there's some really good things about our culture, and I think that there's uh, some really bad things about our culture. Um, but regardless, I always have a good time at least celebrating um, the idea that we are, are free to make a lot of our own choices here. And this is not like a patriotic sermon where that's not what I'm preaching on. Um, don't worry. Uh, I'm not going to be political or anything. Uh, but the, the reason I wanted to go into that was just because I think that when... When you live in a certain country, you adapt to a certain culture. You come to value certain things, and you come to see the world a certain way, and your life reflects the culture of the country that you live in. And uh, most of us here are from the United States. Not everybody, all of us here at least, have been living in the United States for, for some period of time. And so undoubtedly, our culture has come to affect you a little bit. I have no doubt that uh, it, it's impacted the way that you see the world, maybe some for the better, maybe some for the worse. Um, but, but it's had its mark on you. And this morning, though, I want to talk about uh, the place where, if you are a Christian, that you're actually a true citizen of. You know, you might be a citizen of the United States, you might be a citizen of some other country, but in reality, when you became a Christian, your citizenship got transferred, and that this world is no longer your home, but you are actually a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom. And so this morning, I really want to talk about the culture of that kingdom? What is the culture of that country uh, that we have become citizens of? And to do that, we're going to look at the book of Hebrews. And uh, we're actually going to be looking at the very last chapter of Hebrews. So I want to uh, bring you up to date a little bit about what's going on in this letter as it comes to a close here, because Hebrews 13 is, is the last chapter. So what's going on? Uh, we actually don't know for sure who wrote the letter of Hebrews, and we also don't know for sure who it was written to. Uh, undoubtedly, it was written to uh, Jewish recipients. We're just not sure exactly where. A lot of people think maybe Rome. Uh, but regardless, there are a lot of things we do know about the letter. <clears throat> and the biggest thing is really that these people were undergoing persecution. You can see this all throughout the letter. And there's this big theme of perseverance, okay? And the reason a lot of people think that the letter was probably written to Jews that were in Rome is because there was a lot of persecution that was going on for Christians there. And one of the things that the author keeps reminding them of is how God's new covenant, this, this new relationship he's called you into as Christians, is better than this old covenant that was there to foreshadow this covenant that he's invited you into now. Okay, So he's helping them to see, man, this, this new relationship that God has given us is better than this old one. And he's encouraging them to remember that and to not turn back to the old way that they used to do things. And you say, well, if it's so much better, why would they turn back to the old way that they used to do things? Well, part of that was because Christians were under such heavy persecution. And so because of this, there's a temptation to say, well, you know what? I don't really know if I want to keep going with all of this kind of Christian stuff. Like, we're getting burned at the stake and fed the lions and lots of awful things are happening to us. Uh, the, the Jews are not being treated as poorly. Maybe it would be better if I just leave all of this Jesus stuff behind and, and just go and, and be Jewish again, and I can escape a lot of this type of persecution. And so that's why you'll see this big theme of perseverance that's running throughout the book of Hebrews. Luke Hawker actually preached on uh, Hebrews 12 not too long ago, uh, which is probably the most the beginning that might be one of the most famous parts of the book, which is this idea of running the race that's set before us with endurance and keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
So I'm actually going to move a little bit past that now, beyond this idea of just, okay, let's persevere, and just saying, well, what does that perseverance look like? If we're going to persevere in the faith, if we're going to keep on following Jesus, what is the culture that we should have? What is, what is this new kingdom that we're going to be receiving? And uh, my sermon this morning is called Unshakable Kingdom Citizens. And the reason that I, I've titled that is from this very end of Hebrews 12. Uh, the author says this in verses 28 and 29. He says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So here we see he's trying to help them realize, guys, forget about all this kind of stuff that, that's going to be shaken, that's going to be passing away. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And in light of that, let us worship our God with reverence and awe. We're going to talk about what some of that looks like, how we can live a life that does that. For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is powerful. He is awesome. And I can tell you that you want to live under his reign. So I want to pray together, and then we're going to dive into uh, the bulk of the text I want to talk about this morning in chapter 13. Cool? Um, God, we love you. We thank you that you're good. You are a consuming fire, God. You are powerful. You're dangerous, but you're good, and we thank you for that, God. We thank you that... um, We know that we can trust you. We thank you that you have called us into this new covenant, this new relationship where we can uh, come close to you, God, that uh, we, we don't have to fear any more of us not being holy enough or not being clean enough to approach you, God, but that you have made us clean by the blood of your Son. Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that uh, you would remind us of that daily, that you'd help us to be people that live in grace that give grace both to ourselves and to others and that exhibit the kingdom lifestyle that you want us to. God, we ask that you would be with us this morning. Father, please just um, help us to focus on you. Help us to worship you with our mind this morning. God, clear any distractions, fears, anxieties, anything like that. God, just let it pass away and help us to focus on your word and what you have to say. God, we thank you that you are with us, and we pray that we would be aware of your presence this morning. Uh, We love you and pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so Hebrews chapter 13 is where we're going to be. I'm going to start reading here in verse 1. And uh, just to let you know, too, a lot of time at the end of these letters, you'll get like... uh, a bunch of almost seemingly random statements where it's like the author has said the main stuff he wants to say in the letter, and now he just wants to remind them about a bunch of different points of conduct. And so we're going to see that here throughout the chapter. It says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us, then, go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. 
have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. All right, we're going to stop there. Um, But we see throughout this passage this beautiful picture of what life in this unshakable kingdom should look like, okay? Now, this is the kingdom that we're receiving. He even referenced it there in this idea that we don't have an enduring city here, but we're waiting for the city that is to come. He was reminding them in chapter 12 when he was saying, hey, I want you to persevere. I want you to remember that, hey, things are going to be shaken. All that can be shaken is going to pass away, but we are receiving an unshakable kingdom. So if, if, if we're citizens of that kingdom already and we're moving on towards inheriting that, then let us be people that already exhibit that lifestyle right now. And so he's helping us to understand this is what it looks like to live that way. These are the things that I want you to remember. And so like I said, there's a ton of kind of almost seemingly random stuff in here. It's a lot. I have like 11 different things I want to talk about this morning. But that's why I gave you a printed handout thingy that will help you follow along. And I even made an acronym unshakable. So you could probably remember all 11 things. I, I usually try not to do things like that until I'm in seminary right now and uh, I, we were learning about Jesus' teachings. And I forget what percentage he said, but it was like a really high percentage of Jesus' teachings apparently had some sort of mnemonic device in them to help people remember. Remember, it was a really oral culture back then. So I thought, hey, maybe I should try to start implementing more of that into some of my teaching. So uh, who knows? Maybe you'll come away here being able to remember all 11 things uh, that I want to talk to you about. But the U stands for... Uh, As unshakable kingdom citizens, we are united as family. He says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. You see, uh, this is important as Christians. We don't just call each other brother and sister. Like, we we actually are brother and sister. And I I think that this is lost on us a lot of the time, that we, uh, in reality, probably put our blood brothers and sisters at a higher spot than our spiritual brothers and sisters. Uh, But the reality is, man, like, we've been adopted into God's family. This is what John 1 tells us, that that as many as believe in him, he gives the right to become children of God. If you've believed in Jesus Christ, you've been adopted. God is your father. One of my favorite books, uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, uh, the best chapter in it is on adoption. He says, Father is the Christian name for God. Like, you want to know what God's name is? If you're a Christian, it's, it's dad. It's father. And that means that the fellow Christians that are sitting in here with you, that they're brother and sister. And so we need to be people that keep on loving each other in this way. And so how is it that you love your brothers and sisters? How is it that you treat your family? I know uh, not everyone in here probably has a good family situation, but I think that we all know ideally at least what the family should look like. We have an idea of saying, hey, this is what it would look like if I was in a good family. And and by God's grace, I've been given a great family. I'm very proud to be a part of it. Uh, yesterday, I was, I was shoveling mud in the hot sun with my brother and my dad. And, and why? It was, I wasn't being paid for. It was no benefit to me. It was just because it, they needed help with something, and I was there to help. I know at the same time, every time that I've needed help with something, if I ask them, they will be there to do it for me. Uh, no questions asked. I'm not afraid to ask either. If I need something, I, I know exactly who I can go to. And our church should be the same way. Our brothers and sisters need to be the same way in Christ. That one, we have the comfort and and the confidence to be able to ask for help whenever we need it. And that we would be people that respond. I love, I I think our church does okay with this. I think that we can still grow. But I think there's a lot of things where like, man, this is cool. Um, This week, somebody was just like asking to borrow a car. And, and, you know, it's like, yeah, we're going to make that happen. Or, you know, whatever it may be that's needed. Uh, If someone ever needs a ride from the airport or or whatever, any bigger stuff, serious stuff. As the church, we need to be people that come together and make these kinds of things happen. I just read a book recently. It was called The Lost Letters of Pergamum. It's a fictional book, but it was written by a a New Testament historian. And he uh, was describing these ancient worship services. And he talked about how at the end of the service, they would just take an inventory of needs. You know, and every person that had a need would just stand up and say, hey, I've got this need. It might be, uh, you know, my aunt is, is struggling with food or I need a job or whatever it may be. They'd take this inventory of needs and then the Christians that were there would do everything in their power to make sure that those needs were met. They're like, man, that, I want to I start doing that here. That would be pretty cool, actually. 
if we got better at just really understanding, man, we are a family and we are going to make sure that we take care of the needs that we have. This is what life in the kingdom looks like. You know, and not only do we take care of each other, but we also take care of outsiders. The, number two, the N is for uh, nice to strangers. It's a little bit of a weak word, nice, but I, I'd like something a little bit forceful there, but it works with the N. Um, but in verse two, it says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing. So you see, we're not just called to, to serve others, but we're actually called to serve and love strangers. Now, this word here, uh, the Greek word that's used is actually philozenias. Uh, okay, I may have pronounced that wrong. Um, but literally, you, you might recognize both of those words. So phileo is the word for like friendship, brotherly type love, Okay. The city of Philadelphia, you've ever heard it called the city of brotherly love? That's why. Phileo, Philadelphia. Okay, so that's that root there. Phileo, uh, and then xenos. So the word xenos primarily in the Bible means stranger or foreigner. Uh, you might recognize this word from like xenophobia, when people are afraid of outsiders or whatever, they don't want immigrants or something like that, okay? That's that root there. So literally what he's saying here is this idea of love for strangers. Phileo, xenos. And so we need to be people that show love to the stranger, the foreigner, and the outsider. And so what exactly does that look like? He says this interesting thing about how uh, some have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it, okay? So what he's referencing there, at least one of the places I think he's referencing, uh, comes from the book of Genesis. And uh, you may have heard of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, probably. Um, They're famous for being wicked, and and God destroyed them with fire and brimstone. But before he did that, uh, he actually sent some angels into the city of Sodom to go and give a report to see just just how wicked is this place, actually. And so these angels come, and they they set up camp, and they're just going to go, like, sleep out in the town square. Like, it'd be like setting up a sleeping bag in Fountain Square or something, right? And would, you, would not, you would not want someone to set up a sleeping bag in Fountain Square, I'm assuming. Like, if you saw it, you'd say, hey, that's probably not the best place to sleep. There's a lot of shady stuff that might go on around here. And, and so there's this guy named Lot, the only righteous guy in the city. And he comes by and says, hey, you guys need to come in and stay in my house. Don't stay out here in the square. They're like, no, we're going to stay in the square. He's like, no, you really shouldn't. Come on into my house. And so they do. And, and he doesn't know that they're angels. They look just like regular people. But in doing so, he actually shows hospitality to them. And not only does he give them a place to stay for the night, uh, but he does everything in his power to protect them uh, because the wicked men of the city actually come and they want to rape his, his strangers. That's how bad the city was. Um, now, they were able to take care of themselves. They actually got Lot out of there, and the city ended up being destroyed. But the point that we get <clears throat> is that, hey, you don't know who you're serving. And it doesn't even matter who you're serving. God cares about us showing hospitality to strangers. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 25 when he's separating the sheep from the goats and he's telling them uh, all of these good things. That He tells these people all these good things you do. You know, I was in prison, you visited me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was thirsty, you gave me a cup of water to drink. And they're like, when did we do those things? He's like, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. You see, we need to be people that, that are quick to show hospitality and love to strangers. Because whether it's angels or not, it's probably not angels most of the time, but even if it's not, Jesus is saying, hey, even if you do it for the least of these, you're doing it for me. So that's what life in the kingdom looks like as well. Uh, The third thing there, the S, is for sympathetic. Verse 3 says, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Empathetic would be a little bit better, but S, I need the S. So, um, uh, But but really there's this idea of hey, I want you to remember those that are suffering, those that are in prison. And I want you to remember them so much so that it's to the degree that, like, think about you being there with them. Like, think about the the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave us, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's the second one. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so even here in Christ's teaching, what's he trying to get us to do? He's trying to get us to understand what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes and to love them that way, right? I, I want you to, to connect with how these other people are. Love your neighbors, you love yourself. Think about what it would be like if you were in that situation and love them that way. It's the same thing that we're getting here with the author of Hebrews is communicating. I want you to think, what would it be like if you were in prison? What would it be like if you were being mistreated? I want you to remember those people and to love them. 
And so uh, this would probably be particularly helpful for the, the, this church, because like I said, they were undergoing persecution. So they probably had a lot of friends uh, that had been thrown in prison. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but I can be pretty bad with like long distance friendships. Like it's not like I don't care about you anymore, but it's just, I'm just like a, I'm focused on what's in front of me, you know, out of sight, out of mind kind of a thing. And uh, sometimes I need reminders like this, especially for those that, that might need some more help uh, that are not in my direct line of sight. And so this is another thing that kingdom uh, citizens exhibit is this sympathy for, um, for others. H is for honor marriage. Kingdom citizens honor marriage. Verse four says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Okay, so I find this interesting. He says marriage should be honored by all. Okay, so it's not just people that are married. It's not like, hey, married people, honor your marriage, and single people, like, you kind of do whatever you want to do. No, no, marriage is to be honored by all. So how do we do that? Of course, I think on the most base level, this means married people are faithful to, to each other. You keep your covenant. Uh, there's no adultery or anything like that. And Jesus even includes lust in that, uh, right? That if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery within your mind. But I also think that single people have a big hand in helping to honor marriage, Okay. Uh, one is by supporting marriages and, and uh, encouraging people to stick to the commitment that they, that they have made. You know, that you're not going to give your friend counsel to get a divorce when they're going through a, a rough situation or something like that, but you're going to do everything you can to support them. And especially if you see there's a need, there's a marriage that's struggling and uh, they've got kids and they can never get a babysitter and they can never get time out alone, that maybe you step up and you honor their marriage by giving them time to go out and have a date together, you know, something like that. I think as a community, there are ways that we can really honor marriage and support that. But also as single people, I think another way that you can honor marriage is uh, by being sexually pure. Because chances are you probably will be married someday, even if you're not right now. Percentage-wise, that's what happens to most people. And so you're honoring your future spouse with your sexual purity right now. And you are honoring the future spouse of that person that whoever you would have been fooling around with or whatever by not, by not doing so and by being sexually pure right now. Um, by choosing not to lust, by choosing not to, to watch pornography, any of these kind of things that defile marriage and that bring in all this kind of sexual impurity, this is how we can honor marriage together. And I, I just want to be real here for a second. I, I realize this is a difficult command, okay? I think that uh, sexual purity is a massive struggle for the average person. Um, it's been a massive struggle in my life. I get it. This is a high command, but this is not like just some some prudish thing from the old time where it's like, well, they didn't really get how hard it was back then, and now times have changed, and, and our, our sexual ethic is kind of different. No, like, they were, they were just as horny back then as, as we are now, like, okay? They, they really were. As a matter of fact, I was reading a, uh, I mean, seriously, look at Roman culture. It was very, very sexually immoral, uh, just as much as ours is. They didn't have internet pornography, but they had plenty of different other things that they could do, and, um, I was reading a, a Bible commentary on this, and uh, the commentator, Liam Morris, had this to say. He said, all forms of sexual sin come under the judgment of God. This was a novel view to many in the first century. For them, chastity was an unreasonable demand to make. It is one of the unrecognized miracles that Christians were able not only to make this demand, but to make it stick. Okay? This demand of, of Christians being sexually pure, of honoring marriage, of all honoring marriage, not just the married, but also the singles, this was a, a crazy type of command even in their culture. And it's a crazy command in our culture today because let's, let's just be honest, almost nobody does this in our culture. Almost nobody does. Uh, marriage is, is really not respected. It, a lot of the time it's uh, just made fun of on sitcoms as, a, as kind of a, a burden, um, Almost everybody has sex before they get married. I mean, you live in a culture that's extremely sexually immoral. And I know what it's like to, to live in that kind of temptation. It's, it's hard. And praise God that his grace is there. You know, like, like, praise God for his grace. If you've failed in this area, here's the good news. Like, Jesus Christ's blood wipes away every sin, every bit of shame and, and, and dirt from your past. It's gone at the cross. But man, let's also, let's not be like those dogs that return to their vomit. Proverbs says that a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. 
every now and then you'll see a dog, it throws up and it goes back, it starts sniffing around, it's puke, you know, it goes, no, 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 don't do that. You know, if this is your past, whatever, even if this was your past y yesterday, th then that's your vomit. Move on from that. Don't return to it. Let's be people that, that pursue sexual purity and, and, and honor marriage. All right, number five, the, uh, the A stands for assured. He says this in verse five, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? You know, when you understand that God is your helper, that frees you from so much anxiety, right? I mean, for, for many of us, money and anxiety go hand in hand because most of us in here are not loaded. Um, and, and so I think that a lot of time we look at our, our, our bank account or whatever, we're low on money, and, and we get stressed out and we wonder, how are we going to make ends meet? And the reality is, man, he's trying to help them realize, free yourself from the love of money. Don't, don't think that money is going to be your security. Money will never be your security. Even rich people worry about money, by the way. And even if, they, even if you don't worry about money, it's still not going to solve the problems that you have. And that money is certainly not going to save your soul. He says, we've got something better than this. God is our helper. He says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You know, this, this, is, this is so significant for us, guys. I know that I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard before. But what I'm hoping is that the Spirit will help you to actually internalize this and believe this. Okay? Uh, I still struggle with this a lot of time. Just this, it was a week or two ago. I was, uh, I, I was just, had some general anxiety in my life. Didn't even know where it was coming from. Sometimes I worry about money and long-term stuff and all that. And I just went out to Eden Park and, and had a quiet time. And I was trying to make a decision about something I wanted to do financially. And uh, I was praying about it, and the Lord just brought Matthew chapter 6 to my mind. And uh, in Matthew 6, Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. And so he's just been talking about all the stuff we need. We need clothes. We need food, right? He says the Gentiles run after these kind of things. God knows the needs that you have. Seek his kingdom first, and all these things will be given to you. And so that was really the message I came away with is, Grant, you need to stop worrying so much. That doesn't mean neglect your finances, but you don't need to worry about them, okay? Do what you need to do to, to be responsible. But man, like, ha have faith that, that God knows what he's doing, that he knows how to take care. He knows how to take care of the birds, for goodness sake. He cares about you a lot more than he cares about the birds, so, so can we be people that actually understand this, that the Lord is our helper? Can we be people that are actually freed from the love of money because we understand that we have a security that's way better than the earth's greatest bank account? Okay, the, the next letter, this is really rough. It's cringeworthy, but I had to do it. Um, so the word here is conscious. I had to spell with a K. <laughs> I know that's not how it's spelled. Okay, uh, I know it's not how you spell conscious, but there was just, I, I was racking my brain, I was like, I can't waste too much time on this, you'll probably remember this one better than the others anyway, so if, if memory is the point, then I think it'll be successful, <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, conscious, this is coming off of verses 7 and 8 here, he says this, remember your leaders, who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Okay, so why did I choose the word conscious here? Because the author is trying to get his people to realize, I want you to be aware. I want you to be conscious of the way that your leaders live, okay? I want you to consider the outcome of the way of their life. And I really think that you would, would value from doing this because I don't know about you guys, but every now and then uh, I struggle with doubts. Every now and then I struggle with thinking maybe the grass is greener on the other side, maybe being jealous of people that are living life a different way than I am. And, and there's a, that's, that's a common thing, okay? Uh, Psalm 73 has a, a guy that was struggling with that. He writes about. Um, but when I'm in those times, it's always helpful for me to sit back and remember, okay, what is the outcome of the way What's the outcome of life? What's the outcome of, of following life uh, the, the way that Jesus tells us to live? What's the outcome of living for yourself? 
And I just turned 30 a couple weeks ago, and that's like one of those big reflection points in life, I guess I know. When I was in high school, uh, my genetics teacher said that was the genetic turning point, so I guess it's all downhill from me. I'm slowly dying. Um, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, as I, as I reflect on this kind of thing, I think, man, what is the outcome of living for yourself, and what is the outcome of walking with Jesus? And the most obvious thing, obviously, the eternal destination is completely different. If you live for yourself, you're eventually going to end up in hell and separate from the Lord. And if you walk with Jesus, you're going to go to heaven. You're going to be with him for eternity. But I mean, even just beyond that, I mean, let's just look objectively at things that we can see even here in this earth. And I start to look and say, man, who do I know that has a life that I admire and that I would really like to have? Not in an envious way, but just like in a way that I respect. And those people are always Christians. They're always people that are walking with the Lord. And I look and I say, man, who has lives that I just want no part of? Like, they, they're in a mess. Um, they, they've screwed up most of their relationships, all this kind of stuff. It's almost always people that are not walking with Jesus. And, and the reality is when, when I'm not trying to say, like, oh, your life is going to be easy and blessed or whatever because you walk with Jesus. What I am saying is that righteousness has a lot of natural consequences. One, like, your relationships are going to be better if you love people the way that you love yourself, right? The second greatest commandment, like don't you think you're gonna have better friendships if you do that? And even in your times of difficulty, even in the persecutions, the kind of things that this church was going through, you get to walk through it with Jesus. You have the spirit strengthening you as you're there. And I think, man, what a hopeless situation that would be to be in. If, like if this life is all you've got and you get dealt a bad hand, and like you get cancer or you, know, you lose all your money or whatever else, or your wife walks out on you or something, it's like, man, like, you've got no hope. Like, everything is lost. And so as I've, I've looked, I just say, man, following Jesus really is just not only better for eternity, but it's better even here in this life. Like, it's just, it truly is the way to joy, is walking with Christ. He, he gives blessings that nobody else can give. There's a lot of earthly blessings, but even more so, um, there's the blessing of just fellowship with him. And so the author of this letter is trying to get the people to realize, because remember, they have a decision to make. They're being persecuted. And they're saying, am I going to turn away from Christianity and go back to this Judaism thing? Or am I going to stick with this? He says, hey, I want you to remember your leaders and think about the outcome of their way of life. Who is it that preached the faith to you? What's their life look like? And I want to ask you the same questions. Who, who are the leaders that are in your life that are influencing you? Can you look at their life and say, man, yeah, that's a life that I really respect. And that's, that's an outcome, the outcome of their ways, the things that I can connect to the way that they behave, that's something that I want. Those are the kind of leaders that, that you should have. I've been thankful for having those kind of leaders in my life. And ultimately, we have one true leader, which is Jesus Christ. He comes with this statement about Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If following Jesus worked for Abraham, you know, even though he didn't know Jesus the same way that we did, he walked with God, and, and Jesus is part of the Godhead. Following Jesus worked for Peter. Following Jesus worked for Paul. Following Jesus is going to work for you, okay? And I also am going to skip ahead to verse 17 here just because this also has to do with leaders and this idea of being conscious about their lives. In verse 17, he says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So God is our ultimate king, but he's trying to help these people realize, hey, I want you to be conscious of your leaders, their lives, the outcome of their ways, all those kind of things. And I also want you to be conscious about the way that you're making life for them. You know, Don't be really difficult. Don't cause, don't cause lots of problems. Um, that's of no benefit. That's not going to be a benefit to you. It's not good for them. Don't make their job burdensome. These leaders have a heavy burden on them. Um, they, he says that they're going to have to give an account. Um, and so think, think about that. Even those, for those of you that, that want to be leaders, think about the fact that you're going to have to give an account for the people that you're leading. Um, not that your salvation is going to be judged on that or anything, but ultimately like you have a level of responsibility. And many of you in this room already are leaders. Um, you have a certain level of responsibility in the way that you care for, love, and shepherd people. And so if you do that, do that well. And if you're being led, man, be a joy to be led. You know, be conscious about the way that you're impacting the lives of those that are leading you. 
right, the next letter here, E, uh, is for erudite, okay? Uh, so see, I'm smart. I know how to spell conscious. <laughs> so um, erudite, if you don't know what that word means, it, it means uh, showing great knowledge or learning, okay? Having great knowledge or learning. And uh, the reason I chose that word is verses 9 and 10 say, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. So he's warning them and saying, hey, I don't want you to get carried away by strange teachings. And if you're not going to get carried away by strange teachings, then that means that you need to know the true teachings. Which is why I talked about this, this word erudite, this idea of having knowledge and learning. We need to be people that know our Bibles well. Because there's a lot of different competing philosophies out there that you're going to encounter. And how are you, never, how are you not going to get carried away by strange teachings? Well, know the word. Know the word. Cultivate uh, your relationship with God through studying his word. Cultivate your relationship with him through prayer. Uh, get, get to know the Holy Spirit and how he leads us in truth. Because that's part of what he does as well. And as you do that, you'll protect yourselves from being carried away for, by a lot of different strange, the Greek would actually say multicolored teaching, all sorts of stuff, okay? Now, um, the biggest thing you see he's trying to protect them against here specifically is say, I want you guys to be strengthened by grace, not by these ceremonial foods, okay? There's a lot of different things out there that are, they're going to be saying, hey, you need to do this, you need to do that, you'll gain favor with the Lord, He's trying to help them remember, no, 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 don't get carried away by any of that kind of garbage. You are brought to the Lord by his grace. Be strengthened by that. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. People that are, are putting their faith in their works, they're, they're not coming to our altar. Our altar is the cross. That sacrifice has already been made. We come and we eat from that altar. And Jesus gave us his body. And we're, we're forgiven by that. The next letter I want to talk about, eight, uh, A, is for allegiant. Okay? I'm not talking about the budget airline. I'm talking about um, showing allegiance. These verses in 11 through 14 say this. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy places of sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, Bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Okay, so remember, he's writing this to Jews. They're familiar with this sacrificial system. All throughout the book of Hebrews, you're going to see a lot of play back and forth between these, where he'll show something that was going on in the sacrificial system, and then he'll make a parallel to it and how we should behave now as Christians. But he's referencing this idea of the high priest uh, carrying blood of animals in the most holy place. So the high priest was exactly what he sounds like. He was just the highest of all the priests that were in, in that um, Old Testament sacrificial system. And there was this one special day here called the Day of Atonement. And on this day, uh, they, they would slaughter animals, and uh, the high priest would bring the blood into the most holy place, and he would sprinkle the blood on what's called the mercy seat, which was the, the covering of the Ark of the Covenant, Okay. And so you see how all this stuff is foreshadowing, right? The blood is being sprinkled, day of atonement, that's this idea of sin being paid for. So you sprinkle this blood and the sin of the people is paid for. Now, what they would do with the sacrifice, though, is, is after it had been slaughtered and its blood had been brought into the most holy place, the carcass was useless at that point. And so it, it was brought outside the camp and it was completely burned. And uh, so, so th this is burned outside the camp and he's drawing this idea of, hey, just like that carcass is burned outside the camp, Jesus also suffered outside the camp. And then he tells us that we need to be people that go outside the camp and bear the disgrace that he bore. Okay? So Jesus, where did he suffer? He suffered outside the city of Jerusalem at Calvary being hung on a cross. But also what was being done, not only was he physically actually you know, put outside the camp, but he's metaphorically put outside the camp. Who was it that, that delivered Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified? It was the Jewish leaders. Essentially, they're saying, we want no part of you. We, we don't believe that you fit in with who we are. We're going to put you to disgrace. We're going to put you to shame. Or we're going to kick you out, send you out there, be done with you, burn you the way that, that that worthless carcass is burned on the Day of Atonement. And what the author is trying to get his people to understand here is, hey, we need to be ready to go outside the camp 
we need to be ready to be kicked out, to, to be shunned by the Jewish leaders, to be shunned by our society, to be shunned by whatever, who, whoever it is that you may have wanted their respect for, whatever it is that may be comfortable for you, you need to be ready to go outside the camp the same way it was with Jesus. Jesus was hated. Jesus was hated. He was murdered on a, on a bloody cross. And I don't know if there's anything more disgraceful than hanging there being murdered naked next to two criminals. That's quite a bit of disgrace that he bore. And so as Christians, we have to be people that expect to follow in those footsteps. And we, we might be people that are going to be cast outside the camp. We're cast outside the camp of our society. You know, there, there's a certain amount of, of Christianity that our society finds tolerable. But the reality is when you start preaching true gospel, the fact that, that there is no way to the Father but through Jesus, the fact that, that heaven and hell are real places, that, that God's wrath is real and it does come down upon sinners that, that are not forgiven by the blood of Christ. When you start to preach the sexual ethics of the Bible, all of a sudden you'll find yourself being pushed outside the camp. We don't want that. We, we, we don't want, go, go bear your disgrace. This is, not, this is not what we want. And this is what the author's trying to get him to say, guys, let's go be people that bear that same disgrace that he bore. Why? Why do we bear that? Because this isn't the city that we care about. We don't have an enduring city right here. We're looking for the city that is to come. And so if we get shut outside of this camp and people want to kick us out and say, you don't belong in our society, we don't like you, you're a bigot, you're a racist, you're a whatever, all sorts of uh, stupid stuff that people will say about us that's not true, so what? We'll bear that disgrace. This isn't the world that we live for. This is not the city that we care about. This one's passing away. We're waiting for a better city. And so we'll gladly go out and bear the disgrace that our Savior bore. We're living for a city that's yet to come in an unshakable kingdom. And so because of this, the next thing that we do is we boil over with praise. It's in verse 15 here. That's your B, boiling over with praise. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Man, through Jesus, let us be people that, that praise our God. Doesn't matter what kind of disgrace it brings us, doesn't matter what kind of glory it brings us, doesn't matter whatever kind of reaction it is that, that we get from it. We're going to be people that won't shut up about Jesus. We're going to be people that boil over with his praise. This is a sacrifice that he appreciates. He doesn't, he, he's not asking us for bulls and goats to be slaughtered anymore. That system is done away with. Jesus Christ was the sacrifice once and for all. The sacrifice that we bring now is the praise of our lips and the praise of our lives. And so may we be people that are constantly doing that, profess his name, and openly. And then also, may we not only talk the talk, but let's be people that walk the walk. Your elder is lend helping hands. He says, do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Let's not just be people that praise God with our lips, although we want to do that consistently, but let's be people that praise him with our hands. Do good, share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. You know, I have no doubt that God will continually give you opportunities to put these things into practice if you want to. Um, I, I doubt that I'm telling you too much that you haven't heard before. Maybe there's been a few new things, but a lot of this, this kingdom ethic, I would hope, is things that you already know. But as you meditate on these things, as you go back and you think on these, I, I think that you'll find that you have room to grow. In, in being a citizen in this unshakable kingdom. And uh, God will continually give you opportunities. Just as I was preaching this week, it's funny, there were like three or four things I'm talking about in here where God like gave me a specific opportunity to practice exactly what I'm preaching. You know, and this is one of them, this idea of sharing. Um, you know, somebody asked me to share something with them today that's, or not today, but th this week, it's like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live open-handedly, I'm gonna share the things that I have with somebody that's in need. And then finally, this last one, the E, earnest in prayer. You see this request from the author in verse 18. He says, pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly, particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. You know, so not only do these people, they're conscious of their leaders, they submit to their leaders, they care about helping their lives be good, but they pray for them, Okay. 
He says, man, I want you to pray for us. He's not afraid to ask for, for prayer requests. And he's not afraid to ask for something specifically. He says, hey, this is what I really need you to be praying for right now, is that I would be restored to you. And I think that we do a pretty good job with this as a church, but we need to be people that are earnest in prayer, that are constantly lifting each other up, that we're willing to ask for prayer for the things that we need. If you need prayer for something this morning, I, I want you to come and ask for it. I'll be back there in the back. There might be some other people too that, that you can come and get prayer for um, be, because we believe that there is value in lifting these requests up to God. And so as we close here, um, the author gives this little benediction. And uh, in verse 20, verses 20 and 21, he says this, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so, I love this, the God of peace. Why is it that we can call him the God of peace? Because our sin by nature makes us enemies of God, objects of his wrath. We're, we, we oftentimes live in, in um, a way that's contrary to his kingdom, that does violence to his kingdom. That's the exact opposite of what he says. But, but here we see that he is the God of peace. And why? Well, we, we have peace with God because of what he did in initiating it. And this is what he talks about here. Who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. You see this Old Testament stuff, all this stuff in Hebrews, it was all pointing forward. These animals that would be sacrificed, their blood that was shed, was pointing forward to the blood of the eternal covenant that would come. That Jesus Christ would die on the cross, that his blood would be shed for us, and that we could be forgiven of our sin because of that. That we come to him, and we say, God, there's nothing I can offer to you. There's no sacrifice that I can bring that will ever take away my sin. But you, the God of peace, have chosen to initiate and make peace with me through Jesus Christ paying my sins on the cross. And so we come to him and we're washed in his blood. And the cool news is it doesn't just end there. But he talks about this idea of, man, he brought him up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep. So Jesus is raised from the dead. And just as Jesus is raised from the dead, we can look forward too to how we will one day be raised from the dead. And that we will live eternally with, with our great shepherd. And that's the other cool thing, right? Because he says this, that, that great shepherd of the sheep shepherd takes care of and directs his sheep. And when I think about the great commission that Jesus gave at the very end of Matthew, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He leads his sheep. And so we get to be people that walk with Jesus. And not only do we get people that are, not only do we get to be people that are led by him, but literally we're people that are equipped and empowered by him. He saves us, he leads us, and he empowers us, right? That's, that's this prayer here. He says uh, that he brought him up through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And so, you know, the, the things that I've preached on this morning, what I don't want you to do is just roll your sleeves up, grit your teeth, and say, I'm going to do this myself. I do want you to take these things seriously, but I want you to take them seriously in prayer, and I want you to take them seriously in saying, hey, Lord, empower me to do this. Because he not only teaches us, he gives us the ability to do it. And this is the cool thing. If you are a Christian, you are no longer a slave to sin. That was what we used to be. Romans talks about this idea. We were once slaves to our sin, but we're no longer slaves to that. We're slaves to righteousness. We, we've, the old self has been crucified with Christ. And so God has put his spirit in us and his spirit produces fruit. And so if there's something I said this morning, like, man, I just can't shake this thing. I just, I, I, I don't know how to honor marriage. I can't. I'm too sexually impure. You know, or, or I, I'm too greedy. I don't know how to share with those. Or I'm just, I'm too afraid. I don't know how to give open praise to God in all contexts. Or whatever it may be, I, I, I'm I just get annoyed by people and I don't know how to love them as a brother or sister. I'm creeped out by strangers and I don't know how to show hospitality, whatever it may be. It's a tall list. It's hard stuff as I run back through it. But, but praise God that his spirit empowers us in this. And I, and I promise, if you, if you pray and you ask and you seek him diligently in this, he will empower you to grow in these things. And so may we be people that look to our God for salvation, 
for direction and for empowerment. The band can come back up as I pray here. Um, God, you are so good. I thank you, Jesus, that you are the great shepherd of your sheep. I thank you that, that you lead us and surely you're with us always, even to the end of the age. God, we thank you that, that you're consuming fire, but, but that you still invite us to be with you. And Lord, we know that a day is coming when you will shake all things that can be shaken, but the kingdom that we're inheriting is kingdom. God, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for leading us. And God, we pray for your empowerment that you would make us men and women that, that go forth from here and live in this ethic, that live in this way, that, that exhibit this, God, that we would be different from our culture, that we would be willing to even go outside the camp and to bear the reproach that you bore. God, you're worth it. We thank you that, that, that you have a city that's coming and that, that our earth, that our home is not. We love you, Lord. We want to be people that follow you. And God, we want to be a church that repents of the places where we haven't, God, so where we have failed. We ask for your grace. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you would um, just have mercy on us for the, the times that we haven't been hospitable to strangers or that we've haven't loved each other like brothers and sisters. The times that we haven't honored marriage or any of the other various failings that we have, God. We thank you for the blood of the covenant, that eternal covenant. That blood that, unlike the blood of bulls and goats, that's actually able to take away our sins. So God, we praise you as a free people. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here this morning that's not free, that's a slave to sin, um, that they would be delivered from it. God, I pray that you would uh, move us to, to be just like the, the author of Hebrews and be willing to ask for prayer. God, we love you so much. We pray that as we sing these songs, it would be a sacrifice that's pleasing to you, the fruit of our lips that praise your name. And we love you and pray this in your son's awesome name.